Welcome to everybody in this room. Welcome to all those joining us online. I want to introduce us to a new element um, that I'd like to start incorporating in our worship gatherings pretty much every Sunday from this point forward and just give you a little backdrop behind the why. Um, the element is going to be just before the message each Sunday, we're going to have different members of you, the spiritual family, the congregation, come and read the teaching text for the day. And a couple reasons behind this. Um, first, I think it helps elevate the centrality of God's Word in our church family. And I think at a time uh, that we're living in where I think the Scriptures can easily get pushed to the margins and the edges, we want to keep it at the center. So that's one reason. Secondly, I think it's a great opportunity for you as a church family to get to know your fellow family members. So again, the folks coming, uh, don't be surprised if you receive an email tap on the shoulder from me or another staff member or someone who's going to start helping me uh, ask just various ones of you. We're not asking you to be a public speaker. We're not asking you. Uh, I know that it might be uh, something a little bit out of your comfort zone, but I hope that you will approach it in the spirit of this is my church family, and I'm a part of this family, and I'm just going to come, and I'm going to read a portion of Scripture um, to prepare us for uh, the message for the day. And so part of this is going to become what I hope is a little bit of a liturgy for Eagle Church. And those of you raised in liturgical backgrounds, you know that part of that is, uh, that's just a church word for what you can expect on a regular basis when we gather. And so part of our liturgy will involve not only the person coming, introducing themselves and reading, but also at the end of the scripture reading, they're going to say this phrase, this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to respond, thanks be to God, okay? And that'll just be a part of the rhythm as we do that. So please stand with me for our teaching text reading today. I'm Lisa Rass, and um, I serve here at, chapel, at um, Eagle in the Restore Sea Chapel ministry and in hospitality. Our teaching text this morning is taken from Matthew 5, 1 through 10. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of his righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lisa. You may be seated. So several years ago, um, when you would come to a worship gathering and you wanted to like listen to the sermon maybe later on in the week or give, uh, give it to someone else. This is before messages were posted online. So those of you younger in the room, you have no concept. We used to burn them onto CDs. And the CDs were available on the atrium. And we had a little duplicator. And Mike Vanderripe was like, he's, he, he went through the cassette tape era. He's done the CD era and all that good stuff. So 
There was a Sunday several years ago where this very kind woman came up after the service. I didn't know her very well, and she had a, a little stack of the message CDs, and she came up to introduce herself, and she said, Pastor, thanks so much for all your messages that you give. I listen to every single one of them, and I get the good ones, and I give them away. That's great. She had like three in her hand. I said, man, that's so great. I'm glad I've got like three really good ones over the, the years. But if you haven't glanced yet at the message title for today, it's a fairly ambitious title. The Greatest Sermon in History. <laughs> Let me just clarify that I'm not expecting the next 30 minutes or so this particular message to be the greatest sermon in history, but it's a reference to what theologians and historians and scholars believe is the greatest sermon ever recorded that we've got our hands on. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So if you haven't done so already, pull out your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, and their message notes are on the tables in the back like usual. Those of you online, your online host can direct you. Be helpful in following along, not only today, but in the series as a whole. We're going to be in this series for the next six weeks. This will be kind of the bridge from here to Advent. And the Sermon on the Mount is uh, one of those passages that if you've been around church circles at all, it's often referenced in sometimes um, small bite-sized increments. Um, But what I want to do today is I want us to look at the whole of the sermon today. And then over the weeks ahead, we'll break down the whole into some parts, and we'll put the parts, by God's grace, back up into the whole. So think of it as whole parts whole. I think that's how our minds learn best. And I don't think Jesus ever intended for us to just maybe focus on a section without the context of the whole. And so I'm indebted to a number of people for this series. I've been working on this series for several months. God put it on my heart several months ago. Um, But writers like Dallas Willard, if you've not read Dallas Willard's Divine Conspiracy, let me commend that to you as a good read to parallel our series. I think it would be very fruitful. It'll take perhaps a little bit longer than the six weeks even (laughs) to get through it. It's a bit of a dense read, but it's a worthwhile one. But Dallas Willard, William Barclay, Tim Keller, Mike Erie, just amazing scholars and teachers and writers that I'm indebted to for their wisdom and insight shaping this series. And so this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to just step back through Matthew 5 to 7, and we're going to look at the glory of the sermon, the terror, and the hero. The glory, the terror, and the hero. Let's start with the glory, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus says, now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Now to get context to the crowds, we need to go back one paragraph, end of Matthew 4. Here's the crowds, here's kind of the gathering of people on this hillside with Jesus. If you jump to verse 24 of Matthew 4, it says, people brought to him, Jesus, all who were ill, notice, with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. Notice verse 25, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So here's the congregation, if you like, that has gathered around Jesus at the hill for the sermon 
on the mound. It's the physically sick, those who live with chronic pain, those demon-possessed, paralyzed, as well as in a moment you'll see the disciples are a part of this group. And what do we know about the disciples is that they were pretty much working-class day laborers. They were fishermen. They were tax collector. They were, in other words, this scene, this setting, this group is a very ordinary group of people perhaps feeling slightly less than ordinary. If you come in this morning and maybe you're feeling slightly less or out of step than ordinary, which is what people who, if you live with chronic pain, you know that there's just a feeling where you just feel out of step with everyone. If you live in a a sense with just great physical illness or demon-possessed or with emotional trauma issues, like this group that's gathered around Jesus Stay with me here now. This is the crowd that reveals the glory of the sermon. Where's the glory, you say? Well, it's what Lisa read so well with the text. When you jump down to verse 3 of Matthew 5, he uses a term multiple times, and I want you to underline in your Bibles, blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. And then he keeps going. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. That word blessed, it literally, it's translated from the Greek word makarios. Makarios means, I put it in your notes, in the enviable position of receiving God's favor. Are you tracking what Jesus is saying here? That there is a group with him here. There is a crowd of people who he says are living a macarious life. They are in the enviable position of receiving God's favor. Now hear this. Their circumstances aren't blessed. It's not blessed that they live in chronic pain. It's not blessed that they have seizures. It's not blessed that they're struck with illness. It's not blessed that they have spiritual oppression. It's not, their circumstances aren't blessed. But, but hear this now, but the way, Jesus says, but the way you stand towards me because of your circumstances can only be termed my kyrios, blessed. You are in the enviable position of receiving God's favor. How glorious is this? This is amazing. This declaration is unlike any other rabbi during that day would have ever said. This is not an ordinary crowd we've already established. This is not an ordinary message because Jesus is saying there is a kind of life he's inviting them into that's available to anyone at any time from any background. And that is unlike any message that has been proclaimed that way. It's kind of like those of you who remember Simon and Garfunkel. Boy, I'm just dating myself like crazy today. I've got like cassette tape. I've got CD. I got Simon and Garfunkel. Do you guys remember the Simon and Garfunkel lyric that went, those who are sat upon, spatted on, spat on, and ratted on? The sat upon, spat upon, and ratted on. Jesus says, you are in the enviable position of receiving God's favor. This is unbelievable. Listen to how Willard puts it in his book. I put this quote in there in your notes for you. The law and the prophets had been twisted around to authorize, hear this, an oppressive though religious social order. 
that put glittering humans, the rich, the educated, the well-born, the popular, the powerful, and so on. It's the glittering humans, he said, are in possession of God until Jesus comes. Jesus' proclamation clearly dumped them out of their privileged position and raised ordinary people with no human qualifications into the divine fellowship by faith in Jesus. Church, that's the glory of the sermon. We're all included. It doesn't matter how ordinary or subordinary you feel today. You are included in an invitation into this makarios kind of life. There is a kind of life available to anyone at any time from any background that can be in the position of receiving God's favor. And Matthew 5, 6, and 7 unpacks what that kind of a life looks like. That's what the sermon's about. He's saying, here's the invitation. It's available. The glory is it's available to anyone. And here, here's the picture. Like, well, okay, Jesus, what does that life look like? That's what the rest of the sermon and the weeks ahead we're going to be unpacking. I put a short little summary in your notes. Jesus would maybe frame it this way. A life of joyful divestiture is available to you where you constantly shed wealth and power and comfort. A life of absolute integrity is available to you sexually and in your speech. A life that's marked with love for people. A love for people that's free from disdain or indifference. A life that's marked with love for God that's so personal and powerful that worry has no grip on your heart. Church, do you see that kind of a life, Jesus says, is available to anyone at any time from any background. This is the glory of the Sermon on the Mount. You see it? And maybe for you today, if you're here today or listening online, maybe this is the first time you're hearing this. Hallelujah that you're hearing this because Jesus wants you to know you are not beyond his grace. You are not outside of a position of receiving God's favor and blessing. You say, but pastor, you don't understand my background or you don't understand my circumstances. You understand where I've been and what I've done. Jesus says, I know, I see, I understand, and you are invited. You I've come for you. It's not an accident, the crowd that gathered at the Sermon on the Mount, that's so not ordinary in the religious circles. It's intentional. And the disciples, the fishermen, the tax collector, if you've been watching the series, The Chosen, if you haven't, I commend you to start watching it. It helps you climb inside the world of those early followers who were just so what? So ordinary. And boy, if you hang out around Jesus' church today, I hope one of the things you might walk away with and go, what's such an ordinary group of people? I hope that's one of the, you know, if you hang out around our church, we're just ordinary. But we've been invited into something we just can't contain. We're just overwhelmed. We got to get together every seven days and, and get a band together and sing some songs and open God's Word because He's unbelievable. There's a glorious invitation to a kind of life. I don't know about you. I've not met anyone else to invite me into this kind of a life. Jesus is the only one. That's why I'm giving Him my whole life. He's it. I've not met anyone else. Hey, I invite you into this kind of a life. Nope, this is it. Which leads now in, stay with me, to the terror of the sermon. You say, what? what's up with the terror? I want you to think of terror this way. As we climb into these words with Jesus, I want you to feel there's this exposing element to this sermon. There's this Jesus reading my mail thing. There's this, 
how do you know this about me, Jesus? There's this moral, there's this vision of moral reality that we're drawn to and kind of repelled from simultaneously. That's the terror. I put a picture in your notes of a literature professor named Virginia Stem Owens. Here's a picture of Virginia. I don't know what you have in your heads for a literature professor at a university setting. I kind of like when I saw Virginia's photo, that's, that's like my literature professor at Iowa State. How about you? I mean, she looks lovely and creative and eccentric, a literature professor. I don't know where she's at in her faith journey. That's not the point of the story, but she gave an assignment. I heard about an assignment that this professor gave to her students because she valued the piece of literature that the Sermon on the Mount is. She had all of her students in a secular university setting read the Sermon on the Mount, and then they were to write a short essay in response. And Professor Owens then recorded a few of their responses, and here's one student. She said, quote, A student said, I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect and no one is, end quote. Another student said, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman lustfully is adultery. To be angry is murder. Those are the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statements I've ever heard, end quote. Virginia Owens said, she began to grasp the students who had the strongest reaction to the Sermon on the Mount were the ones who heard and understood Jesus' words the clearest. There was some... If you really begin to internalize what Jesus is saying in this sermon, there's something inside of you that rises up that says, God, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. Like, save me. Like, it's it's exposing me. It's revealing me. It's peeling back some layers inside of me about my inmost motives. You say, how how do we know that? Why are we responding that way? Because there's something in the Sermon on the Mount is this. It's three things. Number one, deep down, you want everyone around you to live like the Sermon on the Mount says. You want that. You want people around you to have their yes be yes and their no be no. You want them to not hold grudges. You want them to live with some level of integrity. You want them to love those that are hard and difficult to love. You want everyone around you to live the Sermon on the Mount, which leads us to number two. You also, deep down, when you get into these words of Jesus, deep down there's something inside of you that resonates that says, I should be living that way. There's a moral reality, a picture painted, that deep down we're drawn to, that something inside of us says, I should be living that way, which gets us to point number three. (laughs) You want everyone around you to live this way. You know deep down you should be living this way. And point three is, but you also know deep down, (laughs) you're infinite, you fall infinitely short of it. Yes, that's the point. Do you see the terror of it? The terror of it is there's an exposing, a revealing. It's like Virginia Owens students who say, the clearer they saw Jesus' words, the more they were like, ah, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. So the glory of the sermon is it's available to anyone at any time, in any way, from any background. That's the glory. The terror is we're simultaneously drawn to something and kind of exposed in it. Which then, thirdly today, brings us to the hero, the hero of the story. I want you to look at verse 20 of Matthew 5. Jesus gets into this. Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, 
you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, righteousness is a Bible term to simply describe right living in God's eyes, being a really good person, doing the next right thing you know God would want done. That's righteousness. That's what it means to live righteousness. Now, I don't know who you have in your mind. You have, like when I ask you the question, who's the holiest, most spiritual person that you know of today, that you look up and respect to today? Is it a Mother Teresa type? Is it a former like Billy Graham? Perhaps it's a loved one, a grandmother, a grandfather. Like, who is it that when you think, okay, this is like the standard of holiness and purity and like godliness is a Mother Teresa? Well, Jesus' audience, that's the Pharisees. So when he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, the Pharisees are like the local Mother Teresa band of that day. They were the ones that if anyone was adhering strictly to God's law, it's the Pharisees. Now, externally, we'll get into that more later, but it's an external appearance. It, was, it gave the appearance of holiness. It gave the appearance of adherence to God's law, but it was a picture, right? If anyone had purity down, if anyone had a corner on righteousness, it's the Pharisees. And Jesus says to them, now they're really disturbed. You want to talk about a disturbing statement? He says, unless your righteousness surpasses, you can't not just get equivalent to the Pharisees, you got to surpass the Pharisees or what? You're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, inside the people would have said, impossible. That's the reaction Jesus was looking for. I think he was trying to get to a point like, there's no way. That's the point. There's no way we can live the kind of life the Sermon on the Mount calls us to live unless something is done to us. There has to be a, something beyond us impacting and changing something inside of us. There's a be before you do. You have to become a certain kind of person before you can live Sermon on the Mount. I think that's the whole point of this which is what, in the, in the New Testament, there was one character. Do you know when the early church was like trying to evangelize, trying to be missional in their world? They would go out to cultures where very little understanding of the gospel at all, if any, and they would go into settings and there would be all kinds of spiritual conversations and all kinds of gods and goddesses. It's like uh, G.K. Chesterton said, the issue wasn't that people weren't worshiping anything, it's that they were worshiping everything. So they were worshiping everything. And here the early church is trying to be a light for Jesus. And so there'd be all kinds of spiritual questions. There'd be these big forums. There are all kinds of spiritual questions. The early church leaders would give this assignment. They would say, go study the life of Saul of Tarsus and come back and talk to us. You say, well, why would they do that? Well, if you know the journey of Saul of Tarsus, he was, in his earlier days, he was a Pharisee. He would be like the grand poobah of the sorry, of the public Pharisees. All right, see if that'll help. So he was like the grand poobah, right? So you got this guy named Saul of Tarsus who would be like leader of the Pharisees, a ruler, like he was, he was so devout in his faith. He had such a res resume of religion that when this early group of followers called Jesus, he thought they were a cult. He called them a sect of the way, and he wanted to eliminate anyone jumping on the Jesus train because he thought it was taking people away from God. It was an act of holy righteousness that Saul of Tarsus was arresting Christians. 
and he stood giving approval to Stephen's execution, the first martyr in the early church. This is Saul of Tarsus. You say, well, why would they have him study Saul of Tarsus, this very staunchly opposition towards the Christian way? Because Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle. Acts chapter 9 was the transition. Road to Damascus. He's headed to Damascus to arrest a bunch of Christians. Women and children, it says. So he just, everybody, whole family units, arrest them, persecute them, shut the church down. This is what Saul of Tarsus was doing on the road to Damascus until what? Jesus meets him. Acts chapter 9. And in that encounter where he's struck blind and he sends Ananias, Ananias prays for him and he receives his sight. In that, Paul on the road to Damascus, in the language of John chapter 3, he's born again. He receives a new heart, a new spirit, a new mind, a new destiny. Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the apostle in Acts chapter 9. He becomes a different kind of a man in here, and from which the change in here externally he begins to live differently, so differently that he eventually authors 13 of the 27 New Testament books. <laughs> you didn't see that one coming, did you? The guy who authors almost half of our New Testament would be in the category of least likely. So the early church said, hey, go, go study. Everybody knew Saul of Tarsus. The reason they gave the assignment was everyone knew Saul. But what they didn't fully grasp is how Saul became Paul. And the answer was, something happened to him. It was the life of God by the power of the Holy Spirit coming in and transforming a heart in here. It was becoming a certain kind of a person in here from which Paul's life, I would argue, from Acts 9 forward, looks a lot like Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So the Sermon on the Mount flows out of a transformed heart. And this is why Paul himself writes to the church at Philippi. I put this verse in your notes. Philippians 3, this is what he says to the church at Philippi. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's Paul's whole upbringing. He was a man pursuing righteousness, but he was doing it what? By the law. External adherence to God's instructions. He was devout as anyone, but what does he say? It didn't touch the heart. But that which is through what? Faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So the old way that Jesus is, he's, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is systematically dismantling the old way of righteousness by the law. He's, he's dismantling the whole system of religion that was set up at that day. Does that help you understand why the momentum's going to build to put him on a cross and why the religious leaders in the crowd are going to be the loudest chanters crucify him? Because if Jesus is right, they're all out of a job. So he's dismantling the entire religious structure for Paul, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the scribes, all of them were positioning the old way of the law, which went like this. No Torah... Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament, law of Moses. No Torah, obey Torah, helps you become a good person. That's righteousness of the law. That's external, internal. The new way of Jesus, did you see? Jesus says, no, actually it goes this way. Renovation of the heart, internal, external. I'll change things in here, and then things out there will change. It's not, hey, no Torah, obey Torah, hope you become a good person, and you win God's favor. That's old way of the law. New way of Jesus is, huh, this invitation is available to anyone at any time in any setting. 
You come to me. You bring your life to me. You open your heart to me. I'll make all things new in here. And then Matthew 5, 6, and 7 will flow from that place. Which is what brings us, right? This is why Jesus says this, Matthew 5, 17. In the sermon, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. <laughs> I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Do you see? Because he knew everyone in their mind said, well, he must be going to abolish the law. No, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish it. All of the law is pointing to me. He's living Torah. He's like Torah in the flesh. So you're going to know Torah, obey Torah, and live Torah? Jesus says, yes, right here. I'm standing before you, which you can get involved in religion. You can get so immersed in religion that you miss Jesus. And some of you, that's your story. And praise God that at whatever stage of life, maybe you're coming out of some of that religious cloud where you couldn't see Jesus. They were so bound up in the righteousness that comes from the law, they couldn't see that the law was pointing to the Messiah. The Messiah is on a hill in Jerusalem. A sermon on the mount is given to them. He's inviting them into what the law said was going to be, and they can't see it. He says, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. Church, do you see the hero? The hero of the sermon is Jesus Christ, the holy and righteous one. He's the hero. And he's trying to blow away the religious fog for them to see everything that Torah was pointing to, everything that Torah taught. The righteousness of the heart is here before you. It's not an external, internal, Jesus flipping it. It's an internal, external. It's a righteousness from the inside. So you move from God save me from the Sermon on the Mount to God save me through the hero of the Sermon on the Mount. Do you see that? Because it's Jesus that the hero. Look at all of the Beatitudes, which when you read the Beatitudes, there's something the way the early teachers would teach. Jesus is very much in the stream with the rabbis that would teach. In your Bibles in Matthew 5, there's a little phrase in verse 3, kingdom of heaven. Do you see that? There's a little phrase in verse 10, kingdom of heaven. Do you see that? It's like a bracket around the Beatitudes. It's called inclusio. It's a way the teachers would teach. They would put things in brackets. So he bracketed verse 3, kingdom of heaven, and verse 10, kingdom of heaven. The whole section was to be understood as a unit. This is a collective blessed life he's inviting them. And the collectiveness is this. He's wanting them to see. Do you see that Jesus became poor in spirit for you? Do you see that? He emptied himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Did you see that? That Jesus mourned for you? He sweat drops of blood at the Garden of Gethsemane for you. Do you see that? That Jesus, he was meek for you. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Philippians chapter 2. Do you see that? Jesus is the one. He emptied himself. He mourned for you. He was a servant for you. He was a peacemaker for you. The whole thing is a bracket to say there is a kind of life that is embodied in a person. The hero of the story is Jesus Christ, the holy and righteous one. So the question becomes, as you go through the sermon, as you listen, you look at the phrases like, well, how do I enter the kingdom of heaven? How do I inherit the earth? How am I showing mercy? How am I called a son of God? How? How can we do that? Jesus Christ, the holy and righteous one. Do you see that? What's welling up inside is, I want to be a son of God. I want to inherit the kingdom of heaven. I want to inherit the earth. I want to be filled. Yes, 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 yes. Then you look to the hero. Say, God, save me through the hero 
of the Sermon on the Mount. So do you see a church? The glory of the sermon is that this invitation is available to anyone at any time from any background. The terror is it's an exposing. As we get into this over these weeks ahead, I'm just giving you a heads up. It's going to be, there's going to be some examining. There's going to be, Jesus is going to some deep place. He's going to some inmost places. He's reading our mail in a good way. Because simultaneously we're exposed, we're kind of drawn, we know, we want everyone around us to live this way, we really want to live this way, but we know we fall short, which is why the hero of the story has to be the center character of this whole discussion. We cannot lose sight in all the details of the Sermon on the Mount to the one who is sitting before us, the holy and righteous one, inviting us, hey, come to me, enter my school of living. Let me teach you how to live Torah, obey Torah. Let me teach you a righteousness from the heart. Abandon the way of the Pharisees. Give it up. Enter this, the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus says there's an internal, external that's going to happen. I'll make things new in here. I'll start a renovation in here that no doubt about it, it's going to work its way out there. That's going to take time, not perfectly, We'll get into, we'll see, right? It's a process. But Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle, the early church leaders said that was one of the best evangelistic tools they ever had because the people would come back and say, there's no explanation except this. He met the living Christ and was transformed. And the church would say, hey, that's available for you too. You want to jump on? And that's how they had people join the church. It was like Saul of Tarsus became like the testimony at the, every crusade they'd have. Tarsus. Let me t- he gets to tell his story. And all the Pharisees in the crowd's faces would be so red because they remember when he taught all the classes of righteousness from the law. What's he doing up there? And he talks about a change that wasn't external-internal, but was internal-external. And then Peter or John or whomever might stand up and say, and that's not just for Saul of Tarsus. That's available to you. The ordinary perhaps the overlooked, perhaps those who feel less than ordinary, those in chronic pain, those in illness, those with disease, those in spiritual oppression, those whom the religious system of the day was set up to marginalize and push to the edges. Jesus says, no, I've come for you. So there's a story at the end of the voyage of the Don Treader. Those of you who love as much as I do, Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series. If you've not read it, let me commend it to you, or you can watch some of the movies. But the Voyage of the Dawn Treader has this scene where there's a character named Eustace Scrub. And Eustace Scrub becomes so enamored by a treasure that he found in a dragon's cave, a treasure of gold and coins. And he was so enamored with this treasure, he just kind of fantasized about what it would be like to possess that much gold and treasure that the story goes, he eventually turns into a dragon. And so he starts living the dragon life, kind of in the dragon cave with the dragon treasure. But Eustace finds out the dragon life isn't all that it's cracked up to be. So another character named Aslan the Lion comes to Eustace Scrub in the middle of the night one night. And he says, "Uh, Eustace, I hear you're, you're wanting to 
he wants to be, he wants to be a boy again. I hear you want out of this dragon life, you want to be a boy. So go ahead, shed the dragon skin. So Eustace tries to peel off the dragon skin. And every time he peels off a layer, there's just more dragon underneath. And then this dialogue I put in your notes. Aslan, the Christ figure, says to Eustace, you will have to let me undress you. And Eustace said this, follow me now. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, and there it was lying on the grass, ever so much thicker and darker than the others had been. And there I was. There was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. I'd turned into a boy again. So worship team, why don't you come on back up? I wonder if there's anyone here today who feels like there's some dragon skin stuff that needs to be dealt with. And I wonder if Jesus finds you in the crowd with the Sermon on the Mount and perhaps issuing an invitation like he issued to Eustace. We're going to have to abandon dragon skin management. I don't know about you, I'm really good at managing my layers of dragon skin, right? Convinced I can kind of handle it myself, deal with it myself, you know, only to find there's just another layer of dragon skin there. And maybe this morning, Jesus is saying to you and to me, you're going to have to lay down, and you're going to have to let me get to the heart. Are you ready for the heart of the matter to be dealt with? Because if we can get to the heart, the things you're longing to see change, but you can't do it yourself, it's going to involve this, the glory, the terror, and the hero, this place of surrender, to say, come, Jesus you're inviting me into a kind of life that I know desperately I've got to have some change in here. And it doesn't matter You say, well, you don't, what the dragon looks like. It doesn't matter what the layers look like. You bring your dragon skin heart to Jesus and he brings his healing grace to you. That's the gospel. And that's open to anyone, including today at this time. Let's pray. Father, aware and sensitive that this morning these words land in all kinds of soil and all kinds of circumstance. Um, thank you for these words that are extended to people from all peoples and wherever you find us today. Would you open our eyes and draw us to you, the hero. Help us abandon whatever dragon skin management, whatever righteousness by the law, however we're trying to handle things in our own wisdom and strength, that just today, we'll just say, Lord, here's my heart. You might have to send the claw pretty deep, but I want you to get to the core and shed the layers that need to be shed. Would you bring a renovation? Would you start a renovation plan on the inside of my life? that would bring the changes I long to see brought. 
I worship you, Jesus Christ, the holy and righteous one. And I hear your invitation. And in my heart, I say yes and amen. I want this eternal kind of life that you offer. And maybe for you, it's the first time. Maybe you've never given your heart to Christ. You this morning can say, Jesus, save me. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you've been raised in all kinds of religious circles, but today it's just clear like the gospel, which is just bring your life and say, Jesus, save me. I'm just an ordinary person with a broken life and I need help. I need salvation. Save me. Forgive me. Fill me with your spirit. Lead my. You just call out to him. Save me. Or maybe this morning it's a returning back. You've known this, but you've drifted and gotten distracted. Maybe you're on the fringe of the crowd, and today Jesus is locking eyes with you, and you know it. You just say, I'm coming back. Here's our hearts, Lord. Have your way.